This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about a growing and dangerous crisis in Sudan. Recent news has focused on Iran, China, North Korea, and Venezuela, all important issues. But under the radar and receiving too little attention is a mounting crisis in Sudan. What started out as public protests that led to the overthrow of an authoritarian leader has turned into arguably the greatest political crisis in Sudan since independence. Indeed, today's guest argues that if this crisis leads to an implosion of Sudan, it could well be worse than the Syrian civil war and lead to destabilization in the region, including of U.S. allies such as Egypt and Ethiopia. To help us understand what is happening, why it's important, and what the U.S. can do is Andrew Natsios. He is the director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government at Texas A&M University. He also served as U.S. envoy to Sudan during the George W. Bush administration. Welcome, Andrew. It's great to have you on Deep Dish. It's nice to be on the program. I want to start just with some context, and I wonder if you could just briefly give us a, a very short primer on Sudan. Where is it? How big is it? Who lives there? And, and why is it important? Uh, Sudan got independence from Great Britain in 1956, January 1st, 1956. In fact, I think it may have been the first country other than India and Pakistan to get independence uh, from Britain, I think, in Africa. So it was very early on in the process. Uh, Almost immediately, there was an uprising in South Sudan, which was part of the North uh, at that time. And uh, there were two civil wars between the North and the South, uh, without going into the details of them, those ended during the Bush administration. And the president was deeply involved in the negotiations that led to a, a uh, peace settlement called the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, the CPA. And that allowed for a referendum in 2011, and the, the, the public voted 94% for independence. And in July of 2011, the South became an independent entity. The South is is, um, mostly Christian and animist. There are a few Muslims, not very many. And the North is mostly Muslim. There are some Christian populations in the Nuba Mountains and in greater Khartoum, but mostly uh, North. So, uh, And the South south is an African culture. The North is more Arab, although there are maybe 40% of the people in, in North Sudan who are Muslim would identify themselves as African, and they speak African languages in addition to Arabic. So there's been a culture and religious conflict within the country. Uh, the country's smaller now than it was, but it's still a huge country in the north, even with southern independence. So there are about 43 million people who live there. There are something like 175 tribes uh, in northern Sudan. And um, in Sudan, it's not northern Sudan, it's Sudan but it's the north part of the country following uh, the southern south independence. Um, They discovered oil in the 1990s. That changed the dynamic dramatically. 75% of that oil was in the south, and when the south became independent, they started getting revenue from that oil. The oil pipeline, however, goes through the north to Port Sudan, and the north funded through um, borrowing the pipeline, And so there's been an ongoing dispute as to how much of the oil the South would get versus the North would get. And meanwhile, since this this was uh, during the peace negotiations 10, 15 years ago, 
the first $25 of all uh, revenue from the uh, per barrel of oil uh, goes to the north automatically under agreement. And the rest uh, goes to the oil companies for managing it and, and then some to the southern government. But the oil wells shut down in the, I think it was 2012, because Bashir was diverting oil illegally, uh, surreptitiously from the pipeline uh, and selling it. And that led to the southerners shutting the, the oil fields down. And that put severe strain on both the northern government and, and southern governments. They are oil-based governments. Ninety-two percent of the revenue of southern Sudan's government was um, from oil. And a huge percentage, which we don't actually know for sure, of the northern government's budget was based on oil. Once you shut that down, you destabilize the government. And in addition, there's been a drop by 50% of the per-price um, barrel of oil since 19, uh, 2011. 2011, I think it was $110 on average, and now it's like $58. So there's been a huge drop in the value of oil, even if there had been no southern peace agreement. And that is what we're dealing with here. A, gradually, the northern government has been destabilizing. Bashir hasn't spent all that oil money to develop the country, particularly the periphery of the country. He spent it on more money for the secret police to maintain control, more jobs, patronage jobs uh, for uh, his clients, his friends, his his alliance, uh, political alliance. And the consequence of that is there's a huge state that, of people who have jobs, but there's no money to pay them salaries. And uh, there are a lot of people in, in Khartoum and in the surrounding area who have contracts with the government. They're sweetheart deals. They were never competed. And they're friends of Bashir and his ruling party. And they don't have money to pay those contracts now. And so the, the machine that he used to keep control has been eroding because the money isn't there anymore. In addition to keep the economy from completely imploding, he had to um, eliminate food subsidies. There was a subsidy for bread and a subsidy for fuel oil, and those were extremely sensitive politically. So in December of last year, because the economy is in such bad shape, he tried to uh, reduce or eliminate those subsidies, and that led to the uprising last December. And April eleventh, uh, the military removed him. But the people that removed him were his own people. It wasn't as though there was a popular uprising that led to uh, them taking control. It led to the military removing him. It was a popular uprising, but they didn't actually take control and haven't yet. So that's a fascinating uh, and I think a really succinct um, description of a whole bunch of very complex um, dynamics from the uh, you know the ethnic makeup of the country, uh, the history, the ec- the economy, and clearly one right there gets a sense of how difficult a situation um, confronts the country at at this point, and. You you note that, and to start unpacking some of that, uh, you, you note that the that the public uprisings uh, were motivated by the policies to reduce you know f- food, uh, subsidies, uh, uh, important subsidies for 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 people's lives, and I want to, and as you note, in December there are you know protests on the street that 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 continue, and then in April Bashir is deposed, and I. I want to 
Um, just talk a little bit about that. Uh, Bashir, of course, is in power f- since like 1989, so some almost 30 years in power. And as you narrated through, he has he goes through a lot of, of, of pressures from the division of the country to the Darfur crisis, uh, which he had a major role in, in instigating, an indictment by the International Criminal Court. Why was he able to survive so long? And what does that tell us about the political context uh, in which the current uh, dynamics are playing out? Uh, very, very good question. Uh, he, he's a survivor. Uh, he was an Islamist. He was a, and when I use the word Islamist, it's the Muslim Brotherhood, Sudan version. So we need, we need to understand that the Muslim Brotherhood has been governing Sudan for the last three decades. When people say, we don't know what they'll do when they're in power, yes, we do. Mm-hmm. They did it in Sudan. They, uh, Hassan al-Tarabi was the theological leader of the Muslim Brotherhood equivalent and the Islamist party, and he orchestrated the coup that led to Bashir taking power in July of 1989. Hassan al-Tarabi was an intellectual. He went to the Sorbonne. He was the dean of the um, law school at the University of Khartoum. It used to be one of the finest universities in Africa, founded by the British used to be called Gordon College in the beginning of the 20th century. And Hassan al-Tarabi is the one who invited Osama bin Laden to live in Khartoum. And his niece married Osama bin Laden. If you look at the news accounts of when the Special Forces uh, U.S. Uh, military took out bin Laden, you'll note that he had a Sudanese wife. And that wife was the niece of Hassan al-Tarabi, who was the leader of the Islamist Party for decades. He just died a few years ago. He had a falling out with Bashir in the late 1990s, but Bashir maintained his Islamist uh, ideological background, and a large percentage of the Sudanese military, the, the officer corps, was handpicked by Tarabi in the 1990s, many of the men who are older now, uh, to make sure that they were loyal to the Islamist ideology in the Muslim Brotherhood. So um, that is another element of this that's it's, has regional implications. Right now, because the economy has collapsed, or on the edge of collapse, the, uh, the Emiratis, um, UAE, and the Saudis have been pouring money into the government to keep them afloat, but they have maintained control. And their, their, their objective is very clear, along with the Egyptians. The Egyptians aren't pouring money in, but the Egyptians are sort of the older brothers of the Sudanese. And al-Sisi is obsessed with two things in Egypt, president of Egypt. One is they do not want the Muslim Brotherhood to take over Sudan. They don't want the Islamist party running Sudan. Why? Because al-Sisi basically blames the Sudanese for keeping the Brotherhood alive in the 1990s. They made an attempt, the Sudanese uh, Islamists made an attempt to, to assassinate President Mubarak in 1996. Uh, there was a huge controversy over that. So the the the, the uh, Al Sisi is very very concerned. The Egyptian government with the Islamists taking control again. They don't trust democracy at all. They want a a um, non ideological dictatorship in uh, non Islamist dictatorship in Sudan that they can trust and control. The Saudis have the same view, and so do the Emiratis. They do not want the Muslim Brotherhood taking control again or the Islamist party. In addition. Uh, since the Yemen civil war started, the Sudanese government has been providing troops in the Yemen civil war, fighting on the same side 
as Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, and they've been paying $10,000 for every troop that Sudan sends in. And between eight and 14,000 troops have been um, fighting in Sudan, I mean Yemen, all these years, and uh, hundreds of uh, Sudanese have died in the battle, and they've basically done it to get revenue from, uh, because of their treasury situation in Khartoum, from the Saudis and the Emiratis. The other factor in this is, and this is difficult for people to comprehend, is um, the, the closest ally Iran had, now that's Shia Muslims, Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims are at loggerheads, as you may know, and Sudan is a Sunni country. The Muslims are of the Sunni tradition, not the Shia tradition, and yet Hassan al-Tarabi, who was the leader ideologically of, northern, of, of Sudan, was a hero in Iran because he created the second Islamist state in the world. first one was the Ayatollahs in Iran. The second one was the Sudanese government. And um, Bashir had an alliance with Iran. Many of the senior people in the Bashir government uh, were trained in Iran. They got their degrees there. They were trained by the intelligence service. The Iranian Navy had unlimited access to Port Sudan while Bashir was in power. And the head of the headquarters for Iranian um, intelligence for Africa was in Khartoum. Now, that alliance broke up when the Saudis said, look, we don't trust the Iranians. They're endangering us. They're endangering um, the Emirates. And so we want you to sever all ties with Iran in exchange for which we're going to subsidize your economic problems. And that's what's happened. And the Saudis do not want that alliance reestablished. So they have two objectives, keep the Muslim Brotherhood out and keep the Iranians out. And the problem is, the way they're doing that is they've arrested all of the Islamist political leaders, put them in jail, and they have relied on a tribal militia from Darfur that committed all those atrocities. If you remember 10, 15 years ago in Darfur, all of you know, the indictments by the International Criminal Court that was done by what's called the Janjaweed Militia. The Janjaweed Militia is uh, made up of people from a tribe in Darfur called the Rizagat tribe, the northern Rizagat, and they're not Islamists. They, they, I've met with the leaders before. The old leader was Musa Halal. He, I think he was under indictment by the ICC for war crimes. He has been since replaced by a guy named Hamedi. Hamedi was the vice, is, is now the vice chairman of the Military Transition Council, the Transition Military Council, TMC, in Khartoum, and arguably the most powerful figure in the government. Why? Because the Emiratis and the Saudis and the Egyptians have insisted that uh, he put some of his troops in all the cities to suppress the rebellion, because he's an authoritarian, this, this guy. He's basically a thug, uh, Hamedi. Uh, he's a, and, and the Sudanese military doesn't like him. So there's an unholy alliance between the traditional Sudanese military and this guy, Hamedi, and the Janjaweed. They call it the Rapid Support Force. They don't call it the Janjaweed anymore, but it's the same thing. And it's an ethnically-based tribal um, militia that's extremely vicious, that's fighting the war in Yemen for the Saudis and the Qataris. I know how complicated this is, but that's what... It's hard to understand if, unless you're, you know, you're familiar with Sudanese politics. But the outside uh, players have enormous influence because basically, if the Saudis and the Emiratis 
pull the plug uh, financially, the economy will collapse. Yeah, so this is fascinating, um, you know, because we've, we started the story about, as, as we're narrating it for people, with domestic politics inside um, inside Sudan. And as, and as you quickly point out, there are really important outside actors uh, that primarily Saudi Arabia and UAE who are have a big stake in what happens here because it matters for their own stability at home and are and have huge amounts of leverage for for what is unfolding in in um, in, in Sudan so one of the things that has happened I want to kind of bring the story to that domestic politics of how this is playing out one of the things that surprised some observers is after um, the the longtime uh, ruler Bashir was was ousted, as as you say, by his own people, but ousted out of power, is that the street protests didn't go away. People continued to be on the street. What has motivated um, the population within the country to continue to to demand for even further change? How do we understand what's going on there? Well, because the Bashir is still in power. He may not be as an individual. You know, Americans personalize everything. They think if you get one bad guy out or bad woman out, everything's going to be taken care of because that person's gone. There's a machine behind Bashir, and that machine is still completely in, in, intact, and it is, it's in trouble, I mean, because the popular uprising is basically not just against Bashir, it's against his machine, his political organization. And that has not changed. And that organization is going to fight to the death to maintain control because they have their literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs that have been given to these people, this machine, and contracts and wealth. For example, Bashir's brother runs uh, the most powerful bank in Omdurman, which is a city just north of, of um, Khartoum, and all the government finances go through that bank. His family's become, just because of that, not counting all the other stuff they've done, um, and that was never competed. I mean, <laughs> his, his brothers become extremely rich. The Bashir, the greater Bashir family, in fact, the whole tribe, Bashir's tribe, has become very rich. Um, and as a result of that, they don't want to give up any power because it's not just that they will lose money. It's that they have victimized uh, Bashir's machine so many people. They've tortured and murdered so many people over 30 years that there's going to be retaliation. You know, if your son or your daughter, your daughter was raped by these people, and your son was murdered by them, uh, you don't forget that. So this is this is fascinating, and and what you've described, if I simplify it way down, um, is I'm hearing there are really kind of three uh, three groups in play here. One is the the government, the the old Bashir machine, kind of Muslim Brotherhood related, which is still very much in place. Then we've got uh, the group that's led by Hameti, which is a secular kind of military power or thug, as I think you described him, with the sport of um, external regional players, Saudi Arabia and UAE. And then it appears that the population is not aligned with either of those two uh, two groups and has legitimate concerns of, of their of their own about where they would want the want the future to go. So, given and let me let me yeah, make please, a comment. I please, didn't answer yeah. the earlier question. Yeah, um, the perception is that all Arab. I mean, some people's perception is that all Arab countries are the same and democracy doesn't work. That's nonsense. Um, 
Sudan has had three or four periods of democracy with elected governments and legitimate elections. Just after independence, there was elections, and they had a government for several years, and then the military, a coup took place, and they replaced the government with a military dictatorship. Uh, and I think it was 1964, there was a uprising, civilian-led uprising, very similar to what's going on now, that removed uh, General Aboud, who, who was the coup leader, out from power. Um, and this, this uprising was, were lawyers, doctors, um, judges, student groups, and the labor unions. That's the same group now that is, is leading this along with a large group of young people, and now a new group, which we haven't seen before on the same scale as women. Women were at the forefront of this current uprising, which they were not. They were involved before, but not anywhere near to the same degree as they are now. So there have been three periods of civilian rule by elected government officials, uh, prime ministers, who were uh, opposed to the military, uh, you know, wanted a civilian government, supported by civil society, uh, highly educated, two million people, Sudanese highly educated people, have left Sudan for the United States, Great Britain, uh, and particularly the uh, Gulf states, because they could not tolerate Bashir's government these last 30 years. And many of them want to go back. So one of the things that's interesting about what you just laid out and the basis for really a robust civil, several episodes where there's been robust civil society support for moving in a, in a more democratic direction is that one could look at that and say that could be the basis for an optimistic um, scenario for how the current crisis resolves. So to stay on that, that optimism for a moment, what do you see as a, as a realistic, optimistic scenario about where could this go? What, what is the best we can hope for in the current situation? Well, part of it is what the Emiratis and the Egyptians and the Saudis do. If they continue to fund uh, the uh, authoritarian, uh, the, the... When I said, when I referred to Hamedi as a thug... I had a Sudanese general who's retired, who I interviewed when I was envoy. He referred to the Janjaweed as a bunch of thugs. The provisional governor out there told me, he said, these people are thieves, Andrew. They're, they're camel herders. They're, all of them are illiterate. And he, 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 so the Sudanese elite have very low regard for these people. And um, there's no love lost between the traditional Sudanese military and the, the uh, Janjaweed or the rapid uh, support forces led by Hamedi. And then there's a third group, which are the secret police, the NIS, it's called, the Mukhabarat, as the Arabs call it. They run the country in many respects. So there are three uh, centers of armed, um, armed organizations in Sudan that have guns, large number of guns, and a hierarchy. One is the rapid support force led by Hamedi from Darfur. Secondly is the Sudanese military, traditional military, and then the secret police. The fear is, the worst scenario would be, they all hate each other, by the way, the three of them, but they are more afraid of losing control than they do uh, to be be suspicious of each other. They're they're terrified of civil society and democracy because they're afraid all of them are going to be put on trial and be put in jail or worse. And so they've formed an alliance, but they could start fighting with each other overnight. That's the worst scenario. The best scenario would be for 
United States and the European, uh, Europeans of the European Union and the, um, the African Union to go in and say to the Saudis, the Egyptians, and the Emiratis, this is not Egypt. It is not Libya. It's not Syria. There's a history of democracy here. And if we simply try to allow the Sudanese themselves, not, not deciding who the leader should be, it's for them to decide, but to allow civil society and all of these professional organizations to try to put together a plan for a gradual um, movement toward a democratic system and free elections. They want three years, because if they had elections right now, the Islamists might well just orchestrate um, uh, through bribery and manipulation of the system. It would not be a real democratic election. And they, prop- they properly want more time. So the optimistic scenario is that the Emiratis and the Saudis can, would say, look, we agree that uh, a civilian-led government needs to take over now and in the transition, led, led by all of these different groups. And there, there's a coalition of groups that exists now uh, that would govern while they, they de-Islamize the government and the institutions of the country, which Bashir has corrupted all these years, uh, gradually, slowly, but surely, without violence, through due due process, uh, the the that's the optimistic. And then they have elections, and then they move to to become a democracy, slowly, as they have before. Egypt was never a democracy. The Muslim Brotherhood may have won the elections uh, in Egypt under Morsi, but as soon as he took over, he started doing authoritarian things to suppressing. Um, non-Muslim Brotherhood groups in Sudan, I mean in Egypt. And so uh, Egypt's never been a democracy. Syria is not a democracy. Libya has never been a democracy. That's not Sudan. It's not the same thing. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and in that account, um, you talk about a, a role for the United States uh, that we can constructively play there. And, you know, notably, uh, this uh, the Trump administration has very close uh, relationships with Saudi Arabia that they're that they're very uh, proud of. And I. I, I wonder how you see developments uh, occurring. Uh, one of the things that I understand is that the administration has appointed a, a special envoy, uh, Donald Booth, who actually has a fair amount of credibility um, in the in the region and experience um, in the region. What do you see out of this administration, and are they moving in a direction that you think will be effective for bringing about that optimistic scenario you, you laid out? Well, the Assistant Secretary of State for Africa is a retired diplomat who supported Trump. His name is uh, Tibor Nagy, and he was a former ambassador to Ethiopia. Uh, Don Booth is a former Ethiopian ambassador, and he's also a career diplomat. So you have two career diplomats managing things, and David Hale, who I've known for many years, is the uh, assistant, the, the uh, deputy secretary, I'm sorry, the undersecretary of state, for political affairs. He's the third-ranking officer in the State Department. He is basically orchestrating this at the senior level within state. They have been saying and doing the right things in terms of making statements. A little bit hesitantly, but uh, Tibor Nagy endorsed um, the action of the African Union when they suspended the uh, membership of Sudan after the massacre took place in early June. Uh, the State Department endorsed the African Union's sanctions against Sudan. 
which is a good thing, which shows. And secondly, um, the White House, the National Security Council staff, I'm sorry, not the State Department uh, Africa Bureau staff, testified before Congress and said, we are considering sanctions if there are any more killings. And that scared the Sudanese, and that, that since then there appears to have been some restraint. I think they're a little nervous that we could put more sanctions on the government. So the, the administration has taken some steps. The problem is I don't think they're, more, they're, they're as aggressive in telling the Saudis and the Emiratis that they need to stop supporting this guy, Hamedi. He's a dangerous guy, and, uh, this, and all we're doing is arming one more group and funding more and more group from the outside in Sudan that's going to cause greater degree of chaos in the country if things get out of control. So to what extent is there a parallel to the Obama administration and their experience with, with Egypt um, when, uh, you know, there was a lot of blood, bad blood that developed um, when um, Obama, you know, made the decision not to support Mubarak? How far do you think uh, the Trump administration can really lean on Saudi Arabia uh, to move in the direction you described? Well, there's one difference. The, the, what happened in Egypt was happening in Egypt. In other words, it was not a matter of outside forces orchestrating uh, el-Sisi taking over or the Muslim Brotherhood. It was, it was within the Egyptian political system. And, and uh, the President uh, Obama supported the democratic elections and supported uh, Morsi at the beginning. Uh, that is not what we're dealing with here. One is um, Bashir is already gone. And that was done. we didn't orchestrate that. That was already done by the military on April 11th. And so there's a transition council. None of these people have ever been elected to anything. Bashir had uh, many elections. They were all fixed, but they were at least he has that kind of legitimacy in that, that he's been on the ballot before he's been in power for 30 years. He's been removed. The Sudanese did that. Um, this current scenario is three other countries are orchestrating what's happening in Sudan by supporting this guy, Hamedi. He doesn't have support within Sudan. <laughs> Large parts of Sudanese society are appalled that the, the, this Janjaweed militia is now basically patrolling the streets of the largest cities in the country and shooting people. And, and, and that is being orchestrated by outside forces, and that is where we have some influence. We, basically, we should be letting the Sudanese make the decisions, um, and, and, and pressing for some kind of a process. It's up to them to make their own decisions. I think there's a big difference. There's a big difference. That brings me to, you know, a close of this conversation. Um, and what I want to ask you is, one of the things I got out of our conversation here is a much clearer understanding of kind of who the players are and what their political bases of support are. The events are going to continue to evolve on the ground. Help us understand what are the most important things we should be looking for as the news stories come out uh, to help us understand which direction this situation is going. Well, the, uh, the uh, coalition, the civilian coalition of civil society organizations and of political parties, unlike Egypt and Libya and Yemen and these... There are standing political parties that have existed from the 1950s that still exist in Sudan. Uh, the the uh, SPLM North 
is an outgrowth of the political party that governs South Sudan, and they have a northern chapter and three major leaders who actually have run for office. One of them ran for Governor Malik Agar, I know him very well in Blue Nile. Uh, Abdelaziz is a leader in uh, the Nuba Mountains, and Yasser Arman was arrested just a few weeks ago. I, I actually called on his behalf to the State Department to get him released. He's released. He left. He's in Juba right now. But he is a northern Arab, but he's, he has this political party with these other guys. Um, uh, and, and then there's the Uma party. These parties already exist. They don't have to exist in the future. They already exist. And, uh, and, and, and so the best thing that could happen is by the 30th of June, because this coalition of civilian groups and parties have said by June 30th the military must turn over control of the, the, the government to this coalition of, of uh, a council of civil society and political parties. And they then will be governing the country until this process can take place over several years to prepare for genuinely democratic elections in three years. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on and helping us understand which, what is both a complicated situation, but also, as you point out, one that could have enormous consequences if it goes badly and results in violence and mass refugees. Sudan is, as you point out, 43 million people. Um, if there were to be millions uh, moving uh, as refugees in the middle of a degenerating situation would be would have truly huge consequences as we've seen on a smaller scale uh, and still devastating scale with Syria. So Andrew Natsiotz, the director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government at Texas A&M and also former U.S. envoy to Sudan. I just want to thank you so much for being on Deep Dish and help us understand this issue. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please tap share and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests questions on anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon.